Hi everyone, it's me Joseph Harblin and for this episode of Agitprop Interviews I wanted to bring you someone that was a massive inspiration and figurehead in my growing up. Um, I was obsessed, as you guys probably know by now because I've said it many times, with the Club Kids, the Blitz, Taboo, Lee Bowery and all things LGBT throughout the 80s and 90s. So every opportunity as a kid that where there was a TV show where they interviewed the people from these infamous London scenes um, and eventually into the New York scenes, I used to always be fascinated by Lee Bowery and Sue Tilly. Now, Sue is an incredible lady. She was the muse of Lucian Freud and her painting became the most expensive at auction painting whilst the artist was still alive. And her interesting kind of juxtaposition between her working in a benefit centre and also being this kind of figure of the club scene and also this incredible muse of a famous artist all of this was a fascinating story that i wanted to connect with so here is a wonderful interview and please check out sue's information at the very end well i guess we should probably start at the beginning um where where were you where did you grow up well i was born in putney I lived there because I was two, but I can't remember it. And then we moved to Paddington, right in the middle of everything. And it's a great big house because my dad worked in the bank and it was above the bank in Paddington. And I lived there in the same house with my aunties, uncles and my cousins. And we had some rooms we shared. And other, we had our own kitchens and sitting rooms, but we had the same entrance. And I shared a bedroom with my cousin. And then when I was six... My mum decided it wasn't really a very good place for us to grow up because it was full of prostitutes and drunks. Little <laughs> did you know that that was my favourite thing. And I used to sit out the window staring at them. I think it was a lifelong obsession that I acquired when I lived there. So we moved to Surrey, to Hersham in Surrey. And then my auntie and uncle and cousin just moved five minutes up the road. And then when I was 11, my dad's job changed. So we had to move to Harpenden in St Albans. So it was very middle class and very nice. Then when I was 18, my mum and dad moved to Windsor and I moved to Watford to go to college. don't really know why. But, um, and then, so I lived in Watford and around there for three years. Then as soon as I could, I moved to Kentish Town and I moved in with some friends and my life began. So were you always kind of like around creative LGBT people because there's been so much like in in the media about the story of Taboo and the Blitz and what was your kind of like entry point to meeting these kinds of people? Well, when I left college, I didn't really know any till I was 21. How bizarre is that? I must have done, but I didn't realise they were gay. I wasn't up on such matters. Now I'm an expert. But anyway, (laughs) so when I left college, I started working in the job centre. And there was a gay boy there called Ian Critchley. And you know you're just obsessed with someone and you just really love them and you like them. Yes. Well, we made very good friends. And he introduced me to the world of the homosexual and the world of the gay nightclub. I mean, to be honest, first of all, I think he thought I was a bit of a nuisance because, um, you know, I was a new girl in town. But that soon changed. Yes. um, Yeah, so we had a lovely time when we were in our 20s now and funny enough he left the job centre and went off to have a very high up job at the BBC and I was speaking to him the other day and he's doing a series of podcasts so he's going to do one for me as well so you know I've been friends with him for over 40 years and I always say thank you Ian you started it all off for me 
So when when was this like when was the era of gay clubs kind of like what were the first gay clubs you went to? I think the first place I went to was the Black Cap in Camden. Right. My friend came to stay with me and we'd gone to Hampstead or somewhere and we'd seen a drag act by mistake. I'd never seen a drag act before, but of course, immediately, I just realised that I love drag acts. And so, um, yeah, we went to the Black Cap to see them again. And then I think, what first gay club did I go to? Then I went to Bangs in Turnpike Lane with Ian. That was a just a Friday night thing in a club called Lasers. And then I lived in this big house in Kentishtam. I was having parties. We met loads of people there. And I met, he was friends with one of my flatmates, was Stephen Luscombe from La Monge. And he told us we should go to Cha-Cha's Behind Heaven. So we did. And that's where I met Lee. And my whole life changed yet again. Yes. Do you, was there something like in the air just of that era? Well, because it seems like there was this just like amazing ability for these club nights to kind of like, I don't know how to describe it really, to kind of like blossom these amazing creatives. Because so many people became in bands or artists. And was did, did you pick up on this at the time? Was there like some weird like buzz in the air? Not really, but I was thrilled. The first time someone I knew was on top of because I, my obsession, if I decide one hobby and obsession, it's just pop stars and pop. And the fact that someone I knew was on top of the pops, couldn't believe my eyes. I was so <laughs> thrilled. And it's weird, I often say now, like most of the people from there are really famous and successful or else they died really one or the other. <laughs> Which can but kind of amazing. be successful too. It was a very small scene, you know what I mean? There wasn't mm. tons of people. That, and there was only like one club a night, so you used to see everyone you know. And it's amazing how many of them went on to achieve this, that and the other. And also, I suppose a lot of them all help each other. You know, they went to the university and college together and all that sort of thing. Who were your pop stars that you looked up to during that era? Oh, where do I begin? Boy, George, of course. Um, then Human League. All the, I mean, the best programme, once I saw this programme, Going Live was a Saturday morning telly programme and they used to have video um, vote and they're, they get pop stars on the panel. And one year there was like Duran Duran, Wham, Boy George, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And that general era, Spanzo Ballet, of all those pop stars, that's what I'll always love. <laughs> no, no, but there's just that, I suppose that was the era when I had the most fun, I was going out the most. And I love the songs and I still love them now. Oh, there, you mentioned earlier that you um, were working at a job centre. Was it yeah. like of a combo of seeing your friends in the arts and then also growing up in that environment where you saw these people that were sex workers or whatnot? Did you like have like an urge to help in working at the job centre or what, what kind of led you to work there? Well, I'm so, I'm, I'm not lazy, but I am kind of lazy in many ways and I let things happen to me. I left college, I went to sign on. And they said, oh, we've got a job here. Do you want to come and work in... It was their head office in what was in Watford at the time. And there was a big head office there doing stats. I went, oh, all right then. And then I just sort of stayed because you got paid all right. You got a lot of holidays. It was flexi time. So it didn't really mess up much with my general life. But in my mind, when I was young, I thought I'd quite like to be a social worker. And I thought the job centre would be a bit more like that. But... It wasn't really. But anyway, I always did my best to help everyone. Yes. I wasn't horrible to people. I was always trying to be kind. <laughs> I know and from... Of course, a lot, of my cus- a lot of my friends from work were signing on and everything. 
That's what I was going to ask, because I know, like, so many of my friends, even though they're crazy creatives, they it's trying to get work sometimes when you're living every day in this kind of creative state is kind of hard. And I can only imagine, like, 25 years before <laughs> how hard that would have been, too. Oh, my God. But the thing is, there was this couple of schemes that were really helpful for creative people then. There was the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, where you could set up your own business, you get 40 quid a week. I mean, that doesn't sound much, but I think the doll was only about, like, 23 quid a week. So you could live on £40 a week and you could run your business and not have to worry about looking for work or everything. And sometimes I had to go around and inspect the businesses and I think they were all worried. And then I turned up, they just take one look at me and go, oh, she'll be all right. And then there's other thing called the community programme where you could get jobs. You get paid a bit more than the dull money. And they're only like part-time jobs, but you could work in social care, work in Hampstead Heath or Highgate Cemetery, do general voluntary jobs. And a lot of people I know... They, their careers have carried on from that, really, and they've got good jobs in social work and whatever, because that started them off. So those those um, schemes were really good then. And there was good training schemes as well. You could really do, you know, you could go to Pittman's and do a proper shorthand and typing course or go and learn to be a carpenter. But it wasn't like a half-baked training. It was really proper and serious and really worth doing. Oh. But they don't need to do that anymore, sadly. So when you started to venture into this mad night world, and as you said, you met Lee Bowery, who is an icon to many creative people for all of the amazing variant work he did. What was your first meeting like? Like, how did you stumble on each other? Well, he was just, he was a friend of a friend, and he hadn't turned into Lee Bowery as such then. You know, he just dressed like everyone else with like short trousers, braces, cropped hair, long on top hair. And he, he just has a lovely, he's got a lovely cheery face. And we just got on like a house on fire and then just became friends. You know, I'd be honest, I'm like that now. I can meet one person one day, next day they're my good friend. <laughs> I just put up meeting people. It's my, it's my talent in life. That's good. Um, and, but we had a lot in common, really, because although he was looked like a freak, he came from a very religious family. His parents were social workers and were um, in the Salvation Army. My mum and dad were religious types and went to church all the time. And so we did, and we liked the same things and we just got on. You know when you just get on with someone? Yes. Like we only had two rounds, I think, in the whole life. Oh, wow. It's funny, my, I didn't realise there was a link to their church because my grandparents, one of them, my grand, my granddad was an evangelical preacher, but originally was part of the Salvation Army. And my grandma yeah. was involved with the Sunday School of the Salvation Army. And yeah. we lived in a church for some of my childhood. So, oh. so I mean, people slag off the church, but, yeah, they really do a lot to help people, a lot of them. Oh, so much. People don't yeah, understand. My, mom, when my dad died. The church was so lovely to her. You know what I mean? And all her friends were there were lovely. Yeah, it's community. And like yeah. my my great aunt is still with us. And even when she's been poorly, people from the church go out and make an effort more so than I think most elderly people get, like help-wise. And there's always no. been a, a tolerance for me and my craziness. that Even though I wasn't allowed yeah. to be um, baptised because my parents weren't married. <laughs> Which is a good thing, probably, because I probably set on fire as soon as entering the the building as an adult. But there you go. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, light freaks. Yes, yes. But I've always been. Um, I've always thought people had the wrong impression of of church communities because the people themselves are like sort of the earth, awesome people. I know, so helpful, They're lovely. You know, I don't want to go to church myself. I find it a bit boring. But I mean, I went to church every Sunday till I was about sixteen. I had to. Yeah. But. It was all right. 
My favourite bit was sausage roll afterwards. But, um, yeah. That's but, so funny. That's why I really hate people when slag off. I'd say I was agnostic. I don't really know what's there. But especially in these times now, you think to yourself, what is going on? Mm. Who is doing this? You know what I mean? It's... It's forces more than what we can ever understand, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, we're just to mention to the audience because I'm not sure when the timeline of this will come back. Because my producer, we're, we're on lockdown. We're on lockdown. How are you doing um, during lockdown? Is everything okay with you? I'm thoroughly enjoying it, to be honest. I think I'm used to being on my own, so I live on my own. Um, I mean, I go out, I go out most days generally, but. And I was ill a couple of years ago on at several different. Never really ill, but things that I couldn't go out. And so I'm kind of used to being in the house and on my own, looking after myself. And I've got lots of little projects I'm doing to keep me busy, so I'm thrilled. I saw um, an article and an interview you did in The Guardian that actually showed your home, and it's beautiful. You've got lots of stunning, like, different touches and things. Do you love um, expressing yourself in your interiors? I love it so much, because all the time I lived in London, I lived in Grotty X Council Flats. You know, everyone I know lived in them. You know, flats are really small. Yes, <laughs> And even all those new build flats, they're really small, aren't they? And got low seat. And when I was a kid, when I lived in Paddington, it was a huge mansion house we lived in with huge ceilings and huge rooms. So in my bones, that's why I always wanted to go to back to live in. And then I came to visit my friend who lived here. I thought, oh, it's quite nice there. I'd never been there. I thought, oh, it's quite nice. And so I looked on Rightmove and I just saw all these amazing flats with high ceilings, big windows, beautiful buildings, and so cheap. Mm. So the next day I put my flat on the market in Bethnal Green and decided to move here. And um, it's the best thing I ever did. Where are you at the moment? In St Leonard's on Sea, which is very near Hastings, more or less the same place. Oh, lovely. Tons of creative people here. You know, loads of my friends from London have come down here. My friend Wayne, he runs loads of gay clubs in London, he's got a pub here. Loads of people who worked at Taboo are here, so we call it Taboo on Sea, for a joke. <laughs> and I see my friends... Much more now I live here than I ever saw them in London because it's people like to come down for a visit, and I've made so many new friends. I've been here as well. Mm. It's such a lovely place. It's so creative, and also there's loads and loads of secondhand shops, and there's this big, huge warehouse called French Depot, which is where I just get all my furniture from. It's just amazing. Oh my god! I, yeah, so you just get beautiful furniture, and then the man brings it around that afternoon. And just puts it in place. And it's not like, you know, when you buy something from the furniture shop, it takes six months to come, then you have to put it together, and there's tons of car balls and paper, you don't know what to do with it. So it's marvellous. So I could just I could just swing you around my room. Oh, can, you, can you see that um, amazing chest thing there? Yes. Yeah, that's from French Depot. Oh, that's Perhaps gorgeous. You know, I got some French Depot. So I've got some Ikea furniture and I threw it all away. Yeah, it's, it's so good to have personal touches. I've recently been trying to, um, when I met my partner three and a half years ago, I decided to put my home and stuff in storage because he's got yeah. several homes. So I have all this crazy furniture um, that I've got like an old teak tree. And just before lockdown, I was trying to get all my stuff out of storage to sell. And then in the midst of it, it was like, we can't go out, we can't go out. So I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Do you like adding personal touches to the things you find? Oh, not really, because they're always so lovely, I don't need to. You don't need to touch them. <laughs> no, but, you know, I don't, I just love them as they are, so I don't do sticking things on them and applique it and all that business. I just leave them as they are because they're so lovely. But, you know, all my pictures I've got in my house, 
most of them are personal to me. They're someone I know has done them. I wouldn't go to Ikea and buy, or next and buy a picture of pebbles, you know, like... Yeah. <laughs> so, but really, every single picture in my house is a story behind it of how I got it and someone who gave it to me or painted it for me. So, I read that you were studying at one point to be an art teacher. I was. Where, what was the motivation behind that? Obviously, because you're artistic and you paint, which I'll talk about in a sec. Yeah. But, but when, when I left, I was very bone idle at school. When I was good luck, I passed any exams, really. And um, I thought, oh, I'll go to this teacher training college to be an art teacher. And that's like the three most boring years of my life. That really, I've forgotten everything about it. It was so bizarre. <laughs> but anyway, so then I went to work at the job centre, you know. But then just recently, I've become an art teacher. And you're offering art classes and quizzes on social media during lockdown, which yeah. is excellent. I know, because I had my art class, first of all, at Wayne's Pub, and that was really successful. We were oversubscribed, and people really loved it. Because I don't teach them, because I can't bear people, everyone being taught the same. So I let them develop their own styles. And we're very positive, and we love everyone's work. So everyone was sad when that finished, because lockdown. So then there's this... As I told you, loads of people here are creative. And so some of them got together and set up this station called um, Isolation Station Hastings. And they asked me if I'd do my quiz and my art class online. So I am. I think that's fantastic because you've done such amazing, like almost illustrations, not just of um, your friends from Taboo, but also of household objects that I was really oh, fascinated yeah. by. And those actually became something amazing because you collaborated with Fendi. I know. How lucky was that? See, I know it's a terrible thing to say. It's not what you know in life, it's who you know. And luckily, because I'm so chatty and friendly, I've got loads of friends and they're always giving me fantastic opportunities. <laughs> Which is amazing. So you did the, the Spring Summer 2018 menswear one. Did. So what was the idea behind that? Because they were like illustrations and they were printed onto things. And what yeah. what was well, your inspiration? Well, Julian Ganeo is my friend and he's their like stylist. He's a stylist for loads of big fashion houses. And he's really good friends with Sylvia Fendi. And he just loves my pictures. His favourite picture he owns is a picture I drew of my dad. That he has in his house. He has a little chat with my dad. Although my dad's dead in real life. So anyway, so he and he was going to my goal, yeah, right. But you know what people are like. They say things, you think, that'll never happen. Just be rubbish. And then it did happen. And so it only took me about three days to do. Because it was really, they wanted to have an office casual look. And so they sent me pictures of things you'd find in the office, like a phone, a cup of coffee. And then there was a banana skin in it, which was actually, while we were chatting, it was the banana that Sylvia was eating for her lunch. And she just took a photo of it, sent the photo of me with the barn skin, I drew it, sent it back, and that was that. That is pretty amazing. I know. And I don't just moved here. I was doing it all in the spare room, surrounded by boxes, while my builder was building the kitchen. Gosh, it's like I, there's, there must be some sort of like magical element to this because I th I always think like whenever because I'm really introverted and I very rarely go to like my friends used to try and recruit me to go to all the nightclubs when I was like 15 and 16. So I caught like the circus as it was just closing in London and all of the like things that Princess Julia was involved with, who I, who you know. When I was about 16, 17, 18, 19, my friends used to try and sneak me off to London, but I'm really not, I'm quite an introverted person. So I never understand how things come my way when I've had opportunities, but I always attribute it to some magical element. <laughs> I think I've got magic dust on me somewhere. Yes. Because things that happen to me are so weird that 
you know, in your you know, in your mind, you have a little idea. Oh, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that, but don't really do much about it. And then people just ask me to do these things, and it's so weird. But the things they ask that happened to me, I could never believe. I could never even think that that was something that would happen. If you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. I never thought I'd be a model in one of the most famous paintings in the world. Well, that's what I was going to go into because it's absolutely kind of incredible and I think it's kind of indicative because you, at the start when we were talking just before um, the, I began asking questions you mentioned you were also volunteering at the moment with the NHS during the yeah. self-isolation and I always think when you give things to others you get energy back and there's something in that and when you were when you were younger at Lucian Freud the incredible artist um, did a series of paintings of you and one of them broke the record as the most most expensive painting ever sold when the artist was still alive living artist at auction living artist at auction and that yeah. went for 33.8 <laughs> million dollars yes how yes. on earth does that like feel to think like because uh, I find art to be incredible anyway, just to, to put a price on art is incredible. But yeah. to think like, oh my God, I am the feature of something worth that magnitude of... I know, freaky. But then I add it up, because there's four of them. So in my mind, I'm probably worth about $100 million. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, cause, to be honest, that day changed my life. Really, it did. The day that... Because I was at work and... Um, they said, oh, the evening standards are here to see you downstairs. I thought, what do they want? Must be something to do with work or something. And they went, oh, yeah, because we, we've been told that this picture of you is going to sell. It's the biggest selling painting in the world. I was going, well, how do you know? Because I didn't really understand the art world and what to do it was. Now everyone knows everything that's going on and they know what it will sell for and everything. And I was going, what? And I was thinking, it'd be a bit embarrassing if it didn't. I'd be made look a rightful. And um, then... They asked me to go and get um, a photo. So I thought, I'll run upstairs and put my lipstick on. And I Googled it, nothing there or nothing. I thought, hmm, perhaps it's a treat. Perhaps it's a candid camera. <laughs> and then um, the next day, it kind of went mental. It just, I've never, you know, I think I like attention, but it was too much. My phone never stopped. All the newspapers, all the telly, everything were chasing me. I couldn't sleep. I went right weird because I couldn't quite believe what had happened to me. I was just like freaking out, really. Mm. How can this be? It's just odd. And then I had to wait about six weeks to the actual auction. And then that day was just like the weirdest day in the world ever. What, so what did it feel like? I don't know. Just couldn't really think about it because I was just like, from seven in the morning. My phone was just going, and people had pre-booked me to do things. I had cars waiting outside my house. I had Teddy, you know, Teddy Crew vans mm. outside my flat. Everywhere I went, and I was being driven all over London to all these different places. But there was a, you know, the traffic in London, it was just like roadblock everywhere. Yeah. And I was all on my own. So I didn't think, oh, I'm going to need someone with me. I didn't know this would happen. And so it was just really peculiar. And I ended up being rude to poor um, Katie Deerham. Most embarrassing moment of her life, apparently. <laughs> what happened? Well, this I've been all over London. Then the ITV crew was waiting outside my house, and they filmed me in this big piece of grass outside my flat. And she's and I had a headpiece while she was talking to me, and she called, oh, affectionately called Fat Sue. And I went, and I, my head was spinning so much, I just almost threw the. I went, my name's not Fat Sue. Please don't call me that. It's not my name. Poor woman, she was mortified. <sighs> wow. But anyway, and then. Uh, there's that very time that song by the Tingalings, whatever was out, the Ting Tongs. <laughs> yeah. 
And so the vial, what's his name? He used to do Chris Moyles, Moyes or whatever. He did a whole, all week on the radio, he did me singing, it's not my name, it's not my name. Oh, my God. Was this 2008? I don't know. Something about then. Let me I... have a look. So, yeah, this is how I used to sum. I don't know the dates of anything. I think that song came up. It was 2005, but maybe it wasn't. Have a look on Wikipedia myself, wouldn't I? Yes, you can. See when it's sold. God, it sounds incredible, though. What a strange series. You know, like people, they like trying for a bit of attention. Yes. I got it by lying around. (laughs) Wow. You're right, 2008. Sold at Christie's in New York. So the title of that painting was called Benefit Supervisor Sleeping. Do you yeah. think, like, do you like the name of it? Got no feelings about it. Oh, no. When Lucy wanted to call it, I asked my manager at work if it'd be all right. He went, no, I don't think you should. But anyway, Lucy didn't pay attention, just did what he wanted to do as usual. Yes. I find it strange because it's almost like, because if you look at the paintings, it you look like, this magnificent sort of dowager duchess (laughs) like abundance gorgeousness it's because there's been so many depictions of women in paintings like rubens in the 1500s or francois boucher or whatever and i think like there's always this like abundant richness about painting um a beautiful fuller woman's figure but then Mm -hmm. to call it benefit supervisor was kind of this kind of like (laughs) This opposite thing. I know, but I like it. It's glamour mixed with plain and ordinary. Yes, That's what I am. So I'm how did? How was it like? Because you were introduced through um, Lee. Lee's was yeah. familiar with one of his children, and then you became a life model um, through yeah. that connection. Uh, I've always been fascinated by his his studio because it reminded me. I know that I mean this with no disrespect, but you know when you see like a chicken coop. Yeah. And there's like a build up of like debris and chicken coops. Like it rem- <laughs> when I've seen pictures in books because I've always read about Lucian Freud's work. Yeah. Um it looks like there's like always like a build up of like debris like a chicken coop. Isn't that he just used to wipe all his brushes on the wall. <laughs> and when he died, someone bought his flat. He didn't own his flat. He rented it off someone or some posh woman. But anyway, she sold it and this art dealer bought it. And they really carefully took all the debris off the wall and kept squares and gave it to various people to save wow what was it like being in that environment because it was it like around the early 90s you began being a model i didn't really it was just like everyone thinks i'll be going oh the best thing in my life it was so exciting but to me it was just like going to work really i didn't mind going i got up early didn't have to put any makeup on threw my clothes on drove down the west way to his house and then just laid there and he cook me some nice lunch, have a chit-chat, and I'll go home. What was um, his kind of, like, demeanour with you? I was just, like, nice, like a friend, you know, like a normal person. I mean, I know he was very eccentric, but I love an eccentric person, so I sit there laughing to myself sometimes at the things he'd say. Yes, because there's not that many he interviews. He was really kind to me, nice. Oh, fabulous. I just, I can't imagine, like, when you're kind of, like, undressed and then there's someone kind of, like, painting you, like, hat. <laughs> With their eyes getting bigger and bigger to get more in. Yes. And I heard that he had a bit of a freak out when you went on holiday and got a tan. He did, yes. He went mad at me. Oh, wow. 
That's just part of me. I like to think good and well behaved, but there's this tiny part of me inside that rebels and doesn't like being told what to do. So that I begged him to let me go to this exhibition in France. So he'd organised it all and then told me I mustn't go in the sun. Couldn't help myself. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, wow. And but then he didn't shout at me. He shouted at his daughter, Bella, blaming her because she was there. Oh. Or it was me being ridiculous as usual. Oh, so uh, you, when you were like being painted by him, were you literally just sat there still? Mm. God, that must be so hard. But the first one, because it, it all got better, because the first one I was lying on the floor and I thought I was going to die. And after about two days, I thought, I'm going to have to give this up. I can't do this. And I thought, <laughs> you can. Don't be so ridiculous. Of course you can. That's what I tell you. know, I like having internal chats with myself. Yes, and me too. So, um... I did it. So after that, when I was on a sofa or a chair, piece of piss in comparison. Mm. And you can't really see it, but there's like little cushions stuck behind you in various places for support. Mm. But I really, I love the work. They were filthy, so filthy. But I thought to myself that those pillows must be really interesting because they've got all these models' DNA on them somewhere. <laughs> Gosh. It's, I, I was looking at a sort of like insight into a studio and he had a, like a night room and a day room. And yeah. I just... I can't imagine, like, because obviously you're an artist in yourself and you know how different things look in, like, the night. Yeah. To be sat there for that period of time, because it was... Ex you modelled for him for how many years? Four years on and off. Three, three years on and off. That's kind of, like, insanely disciplined to not change. Because you, like, I put on weight sometimes, I lose weight sometimes, I get, like, really sensitive skin sometimes. It's like... Yeah. But if you notice the first picture of me, even in the studio, I'm covered in spots and all lumps and bumps. Looks horrible. But he used to love a skin blemish. So if you had a spot, he'd paint it. And then if you've got another one, he'd paint that. So, <laughs> you know, you look like you're really spotty, but really you only have one of them at one time. Oh, oh. That's why I look so grotesque in that picture. So it looks like I've got some ailment. But he just loved a scar or a bit of spot or something so it made the picture more interesting not like you know somewhere painters they make the person all smooth and just yes he liked the blemish of you know something that was wrong i'm fascinated by this uh, did he use mostly like oil painting from what you know yeah, all oil it was paint. all oil yeah Fabulous, because like some of the stuff that that you forget about is like when you paint with oil, you have to wait for things to dry to get that build up. Yeah, so we had loads and loads of paints pictures on the go. Yes, and they were so huge, you'd work on one bit, leave that to dry, and then move on to another bit of the picture. Mm -hmm. And then he'd, you know, he'd have about six or seven pictures on the go at all the same time, including yourself portrait. So if say his model didn't turn up or something, he could paint himself because he was always there. Mm. Oh, he should have left you some of the proceeds of the sales. <laughs> well, we didn't really get, you know, life's not like that. And do you know what's more important than money? Experiences. And yes, exactly. And to even you know, I see him. that one out. But it's true, though, isn't it? Yes. I think we're learning now money means nothing. True, true. And I really hope that people realise that and they don't need all these fancy things and they're very happy to entertain themselves and looking at nature and plants. Yeah, I love plants. I love, love, love and plants. And I was just sitting in my garden looking at my lovely bulbs that have all come up. They're beautiful. Yes, yeah, my mum's um, rearranging the garden here as we speak, which is really yeah. nice. I've been trying to um, negotiate with my partner because when we were 
he's renovating this house so he bought loads of plants to arrive this week but we didn't have the manpower to put them in place so he's he's had all the delivery of the plants so I'm just like okay I can't be there to help so I can't micromanage him from England just let him get on with it Yeah. Do you um, go to work yourself or anything? Yeah, so I I consult now with brands behind the scenes specifically about how to be inclusive in campaigns. So, oh, okay. yeah, so I got the opportunity last year to launch um, a brand under L'Oreal Innovations called Jekka Black, which was the first ever transgender aimed um, makeup company. So oh, really? when I did the YouTube videos that got like millions and millions of views, I did male to female transformation with just makeup to help people mm-hmm. that didn't have... Oh, I saw one of your videos. Uh, uh, the stuff I've been doing in the last, like, I would say six months is totally different. Like, I was literally a teenager when I did all the videos before. And they're kind of, like, all, like, juvenile and silly, but they made such an impact on young people that were trans because I don't think you could find much content at the time. Oh, no, full of it. Do you live your life as a woman or as a I know, I don't like oh no no no! I understand. Um, I I went to school from like fourteen, and I started to do PE with the girls from that age. Yeah. And then I grew my hair out, and I just was very androgynous from fifteen yeah. to nineteen. But I modelled for a bit, so they cut me and they cut my hair into David Bowie mullets. So oh. I had like this kind of like girl face with David Bowie mullets, but I'm six foot three, so I'm really tall. Yeah. So it was just this weird dichotomy of of image. Yeah. And then when I stopped doing that, and I worked in makeup and. I started to do more behind the scenes. I grew my hair out. And then I won that contest and they didn't publicise that I won. They they just paid me the six-figure prize, but they didn't say to anyone that I'd won, which they were meant to do a full press release. So I went with a lot of management and they said, we're not going to work with you unless you have a boy look. Yeah. So I didn't have really the flexibility and I was still like a, in my early 20s. So I wanted to continue my work more than I mm. wanted to be myself, if you know what I mean. So I wasn't yeah. fussed about it. I could put on a wig and be myself. I didn't need to be every day. So I kind of re- regressed when I got to about 22 and I started to play with boy looks for the first time. Yeah. So now I flip it and I do whatever. <laughs> yeah. I just, best way, isn't it? Yeah. Be on the one you wake up in the morning. It's very strange, though. Like, I, I never... Oh, God, I know. But oh, Down here, every, you get all types. It's marvellous. Yes, yes. I find it fascinating. Pardon? I find it fascinating how um, there's... Even though I'm in my 20s, like, I think the, my generation are really caught up on names and boxes, whereas I kind of was raised by all the drag queens that were very yeah. much do whatever you want to do. So I, I I, don't have actually much understanding of the terms now, even though I guess it is my generation that kind of came up with it. I just think as long as you're calling me something with a smile, I don't really care what you're calling me. <laughs> I know. But, uh, My brother turned non-binary later in life. Okay. At the age of 43. That's cool, though. Yeah, I don't quite know what it involves. He's always got... He's dressed, you'd look at him and you think he was a fella, but he's always got nice nail varnish on. I guess it's almost like saying you're feminist, isn't it? Because it's like I understand what the gender roles are, and I want to do my, I want to do it my way. Yeah. But does it need a label? <laughs> Who knows? Not really? No. <laughs> we are. I think we're just all people. Yes. Yes. Are those people who want to be animals? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, the fairies. Yeah. I but, thought... <laughs> you know, we're just what we are. Doesn't matter. And why do people go oh, so upset if a man goes dressed out as a woman? It's not hurting them, is it? For me, it's something nice to look at. 
So, I mean, if everyone dressed the same, be boring. Yes. I think there's, like, a lack of understanding of intention, though, isn't there, a lot of the times? Yeah. Like, people just filter things through almost, like, the the crowd mindset instead of their own. And, and they get frightened. Well, they get, they're not going to hurt them in any way. You know, it's ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> well, talking about all gender diversity, you were so involved with the incredible nightlife scene of, of the 80s and 90s. Mm. What? I, I don't want like, to ask you loads of questions about other people because I'm fascinated with you individually, but am I allowed to ask you some more about Lee Bowie? You can ask me anything you want. So how did you um, and Lee Bowie kind of like, how did this all come to be? Because you were asked to be the cashier at Taboo. Yeah. So what was Taboo even like to someone that can't imagine it now? Because I guess we have an abundance of nightclubs now, but at the time... Then there was only like one where everyone would go to. So you didn't have a choice. Anyone that was a bit freaky would have to go to Taboo. And it was shabby little spot. Do you know what I mean? But it was like a proper disco. It had like funny mirrors on the walls and banquets. Oh, I love a banquet. And cocktails and... And the manager was such a lovely guy. He just let everyone do what they wanted and turned a blind eye. You know, like some clubs, they're really fussy. Mm. The sound was lovely. And just turned a blind eye to the goings on. He liked it because he was making money at his bar. Yes. And so um, it was it just, and everyone was just off their faces. But, you know, people said there was drugs there and that, but I was, I think I'm a bit innocent because I never saw anyone doing heroin or anything. Mm. Probably because I didn't want to, so I pretend I couldn't see it. I don't know. But, um, you know, drunk, I just mostly just, you know, four cans of Foster on, on you end up on the floor. <laughs> oh, God. What was the music like then? Was it more pop music of the time? Oh, yeah, pop music, high energy music. Jeffrey Hinton was DJing and Rachel Auburn, I think she DJed there. And yeah, it was all like general, just disco, pop, you know, like chart hits as well. Mm. And, and then some of the pop they played the same records every week, and some people invented little the body map people invented little dances, so everyone knew the dance and joined in because That's they weren't cool. on the floor. That's pretty cool. Um, who are the figures that kind of stood out of that era that were partaking in like the nightclub scene and taboo? Whether because I know there's people that obviously people associate with the Blitz, like Steve Strange, Boy George, and Marilyn. Who else do people need to research if they're learning about this club culture? Taboo. Let me think. A lot of them have died, though, unfortunately, like Trojan mm. and um, the doorman, Mark Fortier, died of heroin overdose. People like John Mabry, Bailey Walsh, both who are like successful filmmakers now. Um, Kerry Swin Evans, successful artist. John Galliano was always there. Um, trying to think who the regulars were. Paul Weller came once, wasn't his cup of tea? Um, <laughs> I like, I've met Paul before. I know his, well, I knew his son when I was younger. Yeah, because he's the um, one thing or the other. Um, once. Yeah, he's, he's a, he was kind of obsessed with Japanese bands. So I think he did a version of like their tape. But I'm, I went to his 21st birthday and his yeah. dad was there. So I got to say hi to him. He was very oh, friendly. Was nice. <laughs> um, what else? Um, and just. Bananarama, they used to go. And what year was this? What year did that to be actually start? About 84, I think. Okay. I don't know about dates. I'm rubbish. I mean, I can look it up on Google. <laughs> the best thing about Google is the time you can check things, isn't it? 
my little my lovely niece she's two but she's going on about five she's grown so quickly but she's obsessed with siri she calls it mr tumble so she makes me ask it questions all the time and it can it could do this beatbox thing where you're going to ask it to do a beatbox and she goes oh it's so silly it's so silly and is in hysterics I'm very thrilled. My nephew is eight because I put, put all their pictures up on Facebook. And because he's not on Facebook, he hasn't got his name on them. So someone just texts me and goes, oh, I love this picture so much. Can I buy it? I go, yeah, it's by my nephew. He's eight. Oh. <laughs> but um, this guy's met him, so he was thrilled. Oh. Not taboo. Let's see when it started. 1985. Okay. It became the place to be. Sure. And it's so here on. Um, Wikipedia. When the place to be with long queues for those waiting to get in. Drugs, particularly ecstasy, became a part of the dancing scene for the attendees. The club was known for defying sexual convention and for embracing polysexualism, for creating a wild atmosphere and for playing unexpected song selections. <laughs> There we go. They need all to know about Taboo. Yes. <laughs> um, you mentioned Trojan. Um, pe- for people that don't know who Trojan was, would you like to talk a little bit about him? Because I know he, you've painted a few pictures of him as well as Lee. Yeah. Well, Trojan was Lee's best friend. And Lee bossed him around something rotten. He always mocking him and teasing him. and that Because Trojan was quite sulky and he hadn't been well educated, but... You know, he had his own special thoughts and ways, and he was his own special person. But Trojan held one big thing over Lee, because Lee fancied him. Ah. So that's how the dynamic worked, really. So Lee bossed him about everything, but really, Trojan knew he had the trump card. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Was Lee bisexual? Well, he did it with girls, but I don't think... I think it was any port in the storm, to be honest. You know, people are very highly sex. Yes. About sex the whole time. I think that was him. And so if he couldn't find a boy, a girl might do. <laughs> but that was his parents are, um, were religious than that. Yes. But his dad has been married four times and three wives have died. So that's only he got married he's been widowed. But I think he must have a high sex drive. Cause, probably because he's religious. He thinks you have to be married to have sex. Oh, I see. And... Um, and he's Australian. Yeah. Because Lee's accent sort of changed as he got more, like, part of the art world, didn't he? Because he started with an Australian accent. And when he started working for Lucy, it got real snobby and posh. <laughs> but if you watch, say, for instance, if you watch the programme with Dame Medner in, he'd suddenly go all Australian. Oh, I love Dame Medner. Yeah. She's hilarious too. <laughs> like her now but then she was all right in her day oh she's 103 now or something she's, yeah she's fab um when um you were all working together at taboo and you were seeing all these creatives kind of like form the early kind of like the genesis of their own works did you think um this is going to be some historic thing for our culture in england or did you think like oh everyone's just doing their own thing and having fun I just thought everyone was doing their own thing and having fun. I thought that's what everyone did. I didn't know. Like all my friends go, I can't believe that people think we were special. We were just doing what we did. And was this, this was after the Blitz Club, wasn't it? Yeah. So a lot of people from the Blitz Club came as well, you know. Yes, because a lot of the people that started bands from the Blitz, they went off to become 
mainstream pop kind of yeah. figures. Yes. And then they, because there was a link, like Lee would make clothes for people that were in bands, and there's. Yeah, and the, what's his name? Johnson and that, Boy George. Mm. And when Taboo kind of like ended, what was the next stage? Because I know there was like the Mud Club that came after, and then Ginky Kalinky, and there was. I think the Mud Club was before. Was it before? Because I, I, I only know this from like stories and stuff because I'm fascinated when I watched the documentary about the musical version of Taboo where Boy George yeah. came in to play Lee yeah. and I was interested in what you thought about that. Do you think that the musical kind of like portrayed your experience of Taboo? Not really, but I still loved it because I was so thrilled to be in there. Yes. Really. Another one thing that's happened to me, did I think that someone would ever be playing me on Broadway? No, I didn't. And did you meet Rosie O'Donnell? Because I know she was yeah. very interested. She gave me two pieces of artwork she'd done. Did she? Were they good? No. <laughs> <laughs> pictures cut out and stuck on a bit of canvas with a bit of paint on top. No. But I'm still sure I've got them. Yes. Know. Was she going to play you? Well, I don't know, because she did say to me, we more or less the same size. I think she was a lot thinner than me, but still. But... But it was awful because she was going through a terrible time when Taboo came to America. And so people didn't like it because they'd taken it. I can't remember what she'd done or whatever. But there was some, you know, major scandal going on. Mm. So people sort of boycotted it because of that. I think she was on The View, wasn't she? And she got into a fight because they're very, like, polarised commentators or something, I think. Who knows? But it's fascinating to... Because I always thought, like, there was a slant to the musical from... My, because I'm, I was obsessed with this growing up. Because when I was a kid, I was trying to find some link to people like myself. Because I was just this androgynous creative thing, yeah. and I didn't really know where to find myself because I didn't really see myself in drag. I, I didn't really see myself in transsexual women, yeah. but I found myself somewhere in between. So I used to obsessively watch every documentary I could find on the Blitz and on Taboo, and and it's it's fascinating and it's such a privilege to speak to you about this stuff. Welcome. <laughs> I'm trying to find when the mud club opened. Okay. Um, did you want to speak a little bit about the book you published on Lee? Because I think from the first-hand account of him, you're probably the best person to... Oh, you're right. January 80... Yeah, I'm right. It is open before Taboo. January 84. Okay. Okay. Oh, I've got something right. It's a miracle. What am I talking about now? The book? Yeah, I'd love you to speak a little bit about the book you wrote. Oh. See, that's another thing in my life. Did I think I'd ever write a book? No, <laughs> I didn't. But then someone just said to me, because when Lee died, the Guardian asked me if I'd write an obituary. I thought it was a bit weird. I thought, I can't do that. What are they on about? And I thought, no, Lee would want me to. He's always telling me to move on and do different things. So I thought, oh, I'll write it. And they really liked it. And they took me out for lunch and everything. And then someone saw it at Hodger and Stout and said, oh, perhaps you can write a book about Lee. Can you imagine? I was, I mean, nowadays, I get things like that all the time. I was like, oh, yeah, all right then. But you know, I was overexcited. I couldn't believe I'd been asked such a thing to do. Mm. And so I just got on and did it. Didn't know how to write a book. I didn't read any books telling me how to write books because I like to do things my own way. Mm-hmm. And also because I'm a bit uh, lazy. So I thought, I'll just go in now, I'll just do it. And I did it. And it was, it's been a cult classic. Yes. So but you can get it now on Kindle, on Amazon. Is there anything, like, a key point that you think people would never know about Lee that you could tell today? No. <laughs> the main secret I've kept all my life, middle name, he mainly promised on his deathbed 
I wasn't to tell you one his middle name. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> but I did that to myself. No, I just, it, I've told everything I need to know about him, really. Yeah. It was just like such good fun. I've never met anyone like him. Because although he was like, he wasn't really weird, if you know what I mean. Mm. He was just a normal person. But had all these different ideas. But, you know, he lived a very normal kind of life, really. Because he'd been brought up in a proper family, normal. You know what I mean? He didn't really have issues or anything. No. I've always fascinated by his, it's the way that he constructed outfits and looks that were done with a meticulous touch that I've always, yeah. it's not been replicated since. There's no one that's come close to it. Oh, no. In my art class on Monday, I was interviewing David Moore. Okay. The thing is, he's got a look, but he doesn't construct it in that way. He just kind of throws found things on together. Yes. He doesn't actually know how to do tailoring, I don't, and all, you know, that kind of business. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. But he really only like making doing things for himself because he didn't really like sewing. Yes, yeah, I... I've I love Daniel Lismore. Um, he is is not the same as Lee Bowery at all. I don't think like Lee Bowery to me was like it was it was almost like painting sculpture. Yeah, he, had, he did loads of research, and he, you know what I mean. Yeah, everything was all researched and thought about, and you know and he'd unpick things, and because I'm very slapdash in life, and if I do something, I'd say, "Oh, that'll do." <laughs> oh, I used to make him dresses, and then. And to me, they were fine. No, stand up there. I've got to unpick this bit. So I'd stand there while I unpick the hem and just, you know, can't you just be slapdash? But no. <laughs> Perfectionism is a thing. This morning, even, I was thinking, if I had to have an affliction in life, I'd like to be OCD. I'm OCD. And to tidy up and do everything properly. Oh, no, it's a nightmare. My mum's OCD, my sister's OCD, and I'm OCD. And my mum is like a cleaning fanatic my sister's like a germaphobe and i'm like a perfectionist with all my art stuff so i'm like oh it's it can be stressful sometimes it's there's it's not always good <laughs> when you're like when i'm trying to throw glitter in a specific way when i was like a child and my mom's having a panic attack about the glitter getting in the cracks of the floor <laughs> oh my goodness must be a madhouse round at yours it, it, it can be you know, I, how many are in the house at the moment oh in this family home right now we've got me yeah. my sister my sister's partner and my niece my mum's partner and my mum so there's all of us oh, so then. Oh, non-stop, non-stop. But my niece, she kind of is the princess of the castle, so we're, we're all yeah. kind of like on her every whim, which is lovely because she's amazing. But, and it must be entertaining for you to have a little child there. Oh, hysterical. She's. We're trying to introduce her to all these games that we played because this home is... Um, where it's a, it's a long story, but basically my granddad, when he passed away, um, we kind of had to re-get this home because this is, was my mum's home. And yeah. then... He lived there and then now it's our family home, if you know what I mean, it's in Brighton. Yeah. So we've got some of the remnants of our childhoods here. So we've got like these dinosaur oh, trump God. cards and my and she's trying to like learn the names of dinosaurs. And it's like, my God, you're two? How is this possible? <laughs> it's so much fun though. But it's, it's strange to be under lockdown in these circumstances because you don't imagine it would be this easy. I thought it would be more tense, I but believe that no one i know is having a breakdown or an upset about it or anything no. just getting off of it how adaptable the human spirit must be sure and it's giving people time to breathe i think exactly i love it yeah <laughs> and, you know like fomo fear of missing out yes you, you think oh they're going somewhere better than me none of that no it's never done <laughs> 
Well, is there anything you've got on the cards coming up with, apart from your digital masterclasses? Are these going to be available for anyone to um, come yeah, and see? If you go into, um, it's called Isolation Station Hastings. Just look it up on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And they have lots of little programs on. And they, the pre-recordings of my shows are on there, the um, quiz and the art. But people come from all around the world to the art. I love it. Oh, fantastic. And um, what was I going to say? My mind's gone. Yeah, and it's, so my art class is Mondays at three, quizzes Tuesdays at eight. But, you know, obviously when this is over, I'll have them back in Hastings. Fantastic. But this is nice because everyone can come from all over. Like yesterday, my quiz, half of my family were there, like cousins I haven't seen for years all doing <laughs> it. So that was really lovely that... I couldn't really chat to them, but I knew they were there. Yes, yes. I'll share the, I'll share the links when they go live. Oh, thanks. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, and it's been a pleasure to be so <laughs> candid. And perhaps when this is over, you could come and visit, or I'll come to Brighton or something. I would absolutely love to. I'd love to see the French Depot. Oh, yeah. Oh, what my the God. Best, the best place. In, they, on Insta, follow them on Instagram. Okay. And may, you can see what all the stuff they've got. May I add you on, on Facebook? Of course you can. Oh, thank you. All it's right. Just, yeah, so just one man works at, Insta, at French Depot with his mum. Oh, I love that. I love that. Uh, well, I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. And thank I you will. from everyone as being an NHS volunteer, because that's such an amazing um, thing to do during this time. Well, I've only done two calls so far. I'm waiting for more. It's exciting. <laughs> All right, then. Well, I'll, I'll let you go now. Um, but thank you so much. And I'll send you an email just after as well. Oh, thank you for being in touch. It was like, oh, the reason I didn't keep answering your emails, you know, sometimes when you've got conversation going, yes. it doesn't say you've got an email and it kind of just goes into the story. Yes. <laughs> so I didn't know you were sending all those emails. So I thought, oh, I better contact him. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> if we're still doing it, then I saw them all. I always think that people are going to think I'm this psychopath because I'm contacting everyone on like these on the means that I can find them. So I'm like, oh my god, people are going to think I'm just this random stalker. <laughs> no, I'm always getting random stalkers. Don't yes. <laughs> All right, honey. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Oh, thank you. Take care and have a lovely if day. You want anything else? Just let me know. Of course. Bye. All right. Send in love. Bye bye. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode. I was really excited to speak to Sue, and she's um, super lovely. So check out her links. She's doing a lot of things online at the moment. And take care.